Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries here to tell you how they built their brands. Welcome to episode 18 of the 24 Stories podcast and this this week we're going to talk about building a historic brand and I'm delighted to be joined by the former CEO of Spike Island, John Crotty. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. John, before we get to the whole building uh, a fantastic uh, attraction brand, which is Spike Island, I want to go back on your, your backstory. Is that a bit of a Waterford kind of accent going on there, is it? Absolutely. I've got a bit of a unique twang, all right, yeah. Stephen. I, uh, a hybrid in, model. A hybrid model is right. I was born and bred in County Waterford and yeah. I was there for 23 years. Yeah. And then I moved to the UK and I actually spent 11 years living in South Wales in Swansea, uh, oh. rugby country. Okay, so um, the first 23 years. So after you left, after you left school, what happened? So I left school and I had a bad start, Stephen, that's the only way to describe it. I actually uh, started a college course that I wasn't suited to at all, went into computer programming. In Waterford? uh, No, it was actually up in Carlow, RTC, 17-year-old, first time away from home, you know, the old classic Irish story of the Irish country boy away for the first time. And what made you choose uh, computing at the time? Was it kind of... Oh, there's, there's loads of work in IT or something. You're exactly right. And even being encouraged to do it by the school that I was going to, despite the fact that my mathematics were nowhere near what yeah. you needed for commercial computing, yeah. as it would have been termed back then. So a great thing to get into, but you needed, I think, the aptitude, which I didn't have when I was a 17-year-old. And how long did you last? Literally one year, and I think the reality dawned on me that I wasn't getting through four years. I did not want to be wasting my parents' money and any yeah. more of that time. That, I'd say that's a hard decision to make though at a young age as well to drop out of college is it? It is and it hits you it is it is and it does I mean, it hits you hard you know you kind of think God I've, I've made a mess of this yeah. and you know I, I'm so young in life and what an awful start don't you just exaggerate everything yeah. when you're still yeah. in those teenage years yeah. and you think God this is the end of the world isn't it so I, I'll never come back from this but. Yeah because I'm always thinking about uh, there could be somebody young listening to this and they could they might be miserable in the course that they're doing yep. and you know it's nice to hear someone that has been through that and decided, you know what, I'm going to just step away from it. And even though it is a tough decision, there is a, a way back, there's a different route, there's a, you know, that, that follows afterwards. So when did, did you try another course or did you go into the workplace at that point? I did go into the workplace and, you know, I, I suppose I kind of bounced around lower level jobs for the next five years, Stephen. Mm. I would, in some ways, I'd say I lost them, you know, and I don't want to uh, disrespect those years in some ways. Yeah, you know, yeah. I certainly enjoyed aspects of it and I had a social life in Waterford, but, you know, in some ways, I suppose Royal Waterford swallowed me up a bit and I kind of got lost in it. Okay. Didn't see my way out of it or where I wanted to go, what yeah. I wanted to be. The only thing I knew is I, I loved business, you know, stories from business fascinated me yeah. and history fascinated me you know there were two subjects dear to my heart but I just couldn't see a way into them as a younger you know teen into my early 20s so that was the first challenge I suppose I faced in life was you know setting a course and trying to find where I could go with that and even back then I suppose you know what are we talking the late 90s early noughties kind of you're exactly yeah. right late 90s yeah. yeah so we're talking the time before I suppose digital was big so even from a research point of view, it would have been quite difficult to hear stories about businesses. It would have been, you know, even from the marketing perspective, nobody was telling their story to that effect back then, uh, especially in, a, in, in, in rural Ireland. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened. So you decided to move to the UK. 
I did. You know, I suppose I, I realised, Stephen, I got to 23. I was seeing friends moving on, you know. Mm. I was seeing people kind of go on the courses I'd like to go on, uh, the directions I'd like to take, but I didn't see it happening here. So I made a brave move. Um, I actually went to Swansea uh, on a trip with some friends because a friend was in university there. Was yeah. really taken with the place, enjoyed it, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for it. You know, and that friend was only there for another four or five months left of uni. I knew I'd end up on my own. Mm. But I thought, you know, these are the kind of decisions that make or break you, and now is the time. So off I went, and and, uh, you know, the best thing I've ever done. And, you know, you can't you can't advise anybody who finds themselves in a bit of a rut enough to, you know, to take that leap, to take chances, to make a go of it, because it totally turned me around. And what course did you do? I did business management in Swansea University. So starting at Swansea University when, when I went over, uh, I was working full time. You know, I, I suppose I had that advantage, if you like, in some ways, Stephen, of being a bit older, yeah. a bit wiser, and the courses were more open to me. I kind of had my pick, I suppose, in some ways, if you could do a good interview. Uh, and I suppose I had the disadvantage of working a full time job and trying to make the most of that degree, get the kind of results you wanted. Yeah, and was the degree by day? The degree was by day. It was actually yeah. two days a week. Uh, it was two o'clock until nine o'clock, two days a week. Okay. So a big commitment to work and a big commitment with you know, your life outside of work, I suppose. You know, it very much dominated the next four or five years for me. But I'm often interested in people that kind of go back and, and you know, after a few years, you know, away from education, they go back to it. Um, is it easier in some cases because of the experience you have in the workplace and you can put it into assignments, you know, problem solving and exams and so on? Definitely, you know, you're immediately applying the kind of things that you're doing at work. And you know, I'd already got into management positions by the time I uh, mm. went back to university. So fantastic. You know, I'm learning all these theories that I can literally go to work and I can actually try them out and, you know, put them into practice. But uh, likewise, I suppose the biggest thing really, it's direction, isn't it, Stephen? You know, if you have an idea of what you want to do, you know, you set your mind on a destination, well, nothing's going to stop you. Yeah. But until you have that, no matter what you're doing, it's going to be a struggle. You know, you, you feel like you're drifting aimless at that point. So I knew I wanted this course. So, you know, the, the hours I had to put in, the assignments, they all reflected, I suppose, the, the I, I, attitude I had towards really making the most of this. Did that course for how long? Four years was it? I was five years because I took I actually took a year out in between to go travelling around the world. Okay. So that was the, another reason for me to go travelling. You know, my yeah. my parents, Stephen, were the classic rural Irish 1970s story. Uh, my mother was pregnant at 17 and marched down the aisle. So yeah, <laughs> there was okay. no choice yeah. on that one. Uh, they were married so young, you know, yeah. uh, babies really, the two of them. Uh, they never got to do that travel thing. And I heard every day of my life in the 1980s and 90s, don't you do what I did. You get out there and you see the world you get out there and travel yeah, you know yeah. which is a fantastic message uh, yeah. and, and in some ways it was difficult when I did the university course didn't go the way I wanted mm. to think that I might have you know I suppose impeded that in any way but I certainly met up for it by the time I got to Swansea and of course the UK has fantastic links for travel and a lot of great places to travel itself so I was off and running at that stage and and I suppose then you bring even more valuable lessons to the table when you come back and literally was it, where where in the world did you go at the time? Uh, Joe, I went around in total I've done about 60 countries um, yeah. I went around Europe once I did a round the world trip that time uh, flew over to uh, Mexico America Australia uh, all of Southeast Asia mm. and then China and Japan at the end which were lovely unique additions I think yeah. 
very different from Waterford, I'd say. Oh, a little bit of a change there, right? Yeah, but you're all mad, Stephen. So yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter where you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got the degree in the back pocket. What happened after that? Do you know, it was fantastic, Stephen. I know a lot of people talk about the value of degrees, but I'm definitely a big believer in the value. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. immediately I saw a difference in the jobs that I could apply for and get. Yeah. So I quickly went, I suppose, from, you know, taking the jobs that I thought I could get into mm. to the people coming to me and me being contacted. And, you know, all of a sudden I've got five, six, seven years uh, management experience mm. coupled with a good degree. Uh, I actually went into a, a premium retailer, as we'd call them in the UK, called Sainsbury's. Oh, yeah, uh, they'd be yeah. quite prestigious in the UK. They're quite difficult to get into, you know, a very difficult interview process. Yeah. So I, a big believer and, you know, a big backer, I think, of the degree system still for all the changes we've seen in the world. And what did you do at Sainsbury's then? So I got into store management initially, which is a, a great way to learn a business. You know, I, I think what they do, and all of them, I would say, even the Aldi's of the world, who I initially started with, um, I had a, a bit of a 10-year journey in retail, uh, again, store management with Aldi. Uh, I initially did stores of about 40, 50 in size, uh, worked my way through with that. Mm. And by the time I left there, I was the customer service manager for Wales, uh, looking after about 14 stores. Whoa. For Sainsbury's? For Sainsbury's. That's a big undertaking. A lot of people through the doors every week. Absolutely. Um, I'm guessing lots of complaints as well, though. Do you know, you get a few, but not too bad with Sainsbury's. And I yeah. think that's why I love them, Stephen. Do you know, they're very much a premium retailer with an incredible model. Do you know, if you, if you think they're selling exactly the same product as the Tesco or the Aldi across the road, mm. but they're charging more for it. Do yeah. you know, and that kind of perception of, well, how can you put the value on something yeah. of, of, out and above its price? Yeah. But they do that and they do it fantastically well by communicating their values as a business, you know, and those values are around looking after their staff, they're around the piece, I suppose, of customer service being exceptional in store. You know, you will be looked after if you need to be, if for something to be brought to something, you will be taken there. Mm. If there's a checkout, you know, needs to be opened, it will be opened straight away. You're not going to be waiting yeah. any length of time. So yeah, really, really interesting uh, process. But of course, then those high standards come absolutely with something minor going wrong could lead to a complaint. The user experience is very important in those type of stores. So I'd imagine, you know, the whole ambience, the feel, you know, the process where things are laid out, like it's very much that kind of service marketing element. Massively, yeah. You know, they, day in, day out, you talk about the customer journey. You know, mm. you're trying to go through the experience of what the customer sees and they put an awful lot of training into staff around that. You know, your new starters, it doesn't matter if they're working in the bakery, it doesn't matter if they're even the HR office. Mm. Their first couple of weeks are on the shop floor uh, being taken through the customer journey from the moment they walk in the shop to the very minute they end looking for improvements, talking about it. You know, what was your impression of that experience yeah. to help them see exactly what you want them to give you know to their to your customers you know you look after the staff like that you give them that training and they will look after the customer so it, it's a hundred percent the focus and that's how you differentiate yourself and you can charge those you know extra prices because people know what they're paying for and those individual stores they must bring in phenomenal revenue phenomenal Stephen you know the Swansea Central store could do a million pounds on a day in around a day. Christmas time in a day around Christmas time yeah phenomenal you could have have 40,000 people through the doors you know to give you an idea on numbers now in one day in one day you know it's like it's like a mini festival almost uh, in and around yeah, Christmas time and like and how, how many staff would be needed for a, a store of that size you're at 200 plus you'd need to, to yeah. roster that and of course it's a 7 day week you know yeah. some of those stores are 
24 hours certainly in London in the lake yeah. and the majority of them are open till 11 o'clock at night quite late stores so they're a phenomenal you know I suppose a business in itself they're an entity almost within the community a massive employer you know if you add in the stakeholders and the number of suppliers you know you're into dozens there again I suppose those type of supermarkets they're they're bigger than any kind of uh, typical SME and often they're looked down on um, yeah. you know yeah. and, and yet any store manager in those type of scenarios is dealing with so many different things at the same they're ju- juggling balls right throughout the day because anything could happen logistics you know staff issues yeah. you know the, the layout of the store or whatever it is and the public, you know, you let the public in anywhere yeah, and yeah. you're going to have me here, aren't you? I mean, to give you an idea with Sainsbury's, I had a scorecard of 11 and I think it's still the same. It might actually be 12 now, but you were scored in minute detail on 12 different categories. So not just sales, of course, you know, yeah. not just loss, for example, but customer service was actively mm. scored. You had somebody coming in on a mystery shop once every two months mm. and it was taken so seriously that that's where I ended up eventually. It was actually, you know, helping other uh, stores to improve their score. Uh, you had a community target, would you believe? Uh, what level of fundraising you're doing in the community? What level of activity you're doing in the community? You know, so a really extensive remit, but you had to give it to them that they kind of give it to you in, in, a, in a template and with, with the training that was necessary. You know, I was out of that business one day every month without fail, you know, no question. So 5% of your time every single month was given to training and given to that kind of advancement. So, you know, they, they walk the walk and they talk the talk in fairness. So... You spent all that time in Sainsbury's. What happened after that? So I would, that, that is the point that I actually moved back to Ireland. And uh, I suppose I'd been in Swansea coming up on 10 years at that mm-hmm. stage. My degree is done. You know, you have to ask yourself the question, is this home? You know, is this where I want to be for the rest of my yeah. life? And it was also a case that you probably have plenty of experience. So you were probably coming back being a bit confident as well. Absolutely, yeah. You know, like you say, having gone away and put that effort in, you know, really, really grafted, I suppose, yeah. for those for that 10-year period to get back the time, I suppose, that I lost in some way, Stephen. You know, there's there's nothing like uh, getting the bit between your mouth, you know, over yeah. something like uh, a setback almost uh, to make you go and really make up for it. So absolutely, I was ready to come back. Uh, all my family still live in West Waterford. Mm. My sister had actually lived in London for about 10 years, but she'd moved back to the area as well. Mm. So it just made sense. You know, the time was right, I think, after about four years at Sainsbury's to make to move home. And did you come back to retail? I did. I initially came back to Dunn Stores. Uh, I spent two years with Dunn Stores, but I fairly quickly found when I moved back, Stephen, you know, not to disparage the market, but the Irish market wouldn't be in the same place as the British one. Mm. You know, there's definitely a bit more uh, of an advanced, I think, approach. You know, they'd be very technically more advanced, allowing you to focus on other things like people and development and the community side. Whereas the Irish ones that I went into and the likes of Dunn Stores, probably still more paper-based, less IT going on. You know, that was a lot more of your day so I probably didn't see the career that I could have seen with Sainsbury's So less strategic maybe less you know Yeah I think more about that day today Stephen yeah, yeah. definitely more about just getting you know getting functional, the product getting, yeah. functional that's a good word for it functional spot on You know when I listen to what you said about Sainsbury's to me that's kind of like textbook stuff there you know like that's that's the type of stuff that you would teach people yeah. you know I'm thinking you know going back to your own degree and stuff like that scorecards this is what we need to get done during yeah. a month or whatever and, and you would think that that's best in class type of scenario so it probably is a struggle to come back to a scenario that's not like that Yeah it's true you know and not see you know again you're looking at the next 20-30 years aren't you you know I yeah, did come yeah. back thinking what's the career development for me you know is this industry where I want to be you know hopefully potentially going from regional 
general management up to a head office type role. Yeah. But you know, again, if you didn't see that fit with your own, I suppose, values and wants and all that, you know, it was important to make that decision early. So I had that decision made within about 12 months, I think. So after Duns, did you kind of take a move away from retail or did you go back in somewhere else? No, that was my change. That's when I spotted the opportunity with uh, Spike Island, you yeah, know, and yeah. uh, if I have two loves in the world, you know, they're definitely uh, business one and history second. You know, coming from West Waterford, I came from a family of storytellers yeah. who just love to speak about the Daisha, love to speak about the history of Ireland, the fairy tales, the folklore, yeah. banshees and pity got loose and all these kind of things. Yeah. So, you know, it's something I've always loved and I've uh, devoured history books. So when I saw an opportunity to I suppose implement a business but in a historical setting well I was off I was off to the races It was your two passions combined Absolutely yeah. everything I could have ever wished for I think in a role was there in front of me so I made bloody sure I was getting that role <laughs> Yeah so you just threw your name into the ring applied for it I did you know God I went further Stephen I, I practically made a submission uh, the size of a small book uh, when it comes to actually what I would have done with the island okay, they yeah. didn't ask for it but I made bloody sure and you know a bit of advice I give to anybody going for an interview you know how are you differentiating yourself yeah. how are you getting yourself remembered how are you standing out so I had a simple little quirk that the island was 104 acres so I'm going to give them 104 things that I can do with that island you know 104 different ways that I can market it that I can build products tours formats the whole lot so they got that in the interview whether they asked for it or not <laughs> So did it come in the format of a book or did it come in the I actually had it bound in the whole lot, yeah. yeah, you know, put it together, bound the whole thing and I referenced it a lot then during my uh, my interview with them. And of course, you know, they were interested, they asked questions, they wanted to know what one of the questions was and no doubt everybody had the same question. What would you do with the island? Where yeah. would you see the opportunities? So I wanted to be able to talk about it but back it up as well. You know, there was a lot of work went into it. Yeah, because I'm guessing, um, you know, at the time you might have gone in as an underdog because... People would have assumed that they'd take somebody from the tourism industry yeah, to do a role true. like that. Absolutely, you know, and it was a very unique role, I suppose, even, you know, it was a startup as well. At the end of the day, you know, mm. they had just spent six and a half million with Falch Ireland. You know, you still had the, you know, the bits on the wall, you know, everything had to be done from yeah. the ground up. I was fortunate that a lot of my experience with Sainsbury's was brand new stores. I'd actually opened two stores at Sainsbury's, so I'd gone through a very similar process of arriving months before the store opened, yeah. you know, creating the templates, creating the standard operating procedures, you know, creating all these different things that are necessary to make a business function day to day and then launching that and embedding that with the training so I know I definitely had an advantage there that I could say listen I've dealt with exactly the kind of startup that you're dealing with just in a slightly different format but of course they do have retail cafe the whole lot out there as well and at this point um, was Spike actually open to the public? No, it had closed during the um, uh, refurbishment, shall we call it. Yeah. Uh, they, they were doing limited tours in the years walking before. Walking tours or something exactly, like that. Exactly, yeah. There's yeah. a very talented guy called Michael Martin. He's a fabulous historian in Cove and he was bringing over tours with uh, Tom O'Neill was doing it at the yeah. time. Uh, Tom O'Neill, a great character. He's been on the island since the 1980s prison and uh, still going. So, yeah. you know, it shows the fondness for the place, I think. So, yeah, there was, I suppose, that limited interaction with the island up to that point. But, of course, when they spent six and a half minutes in Ireland, they wanted to ramp up those numbers for the benefit of Cove and Cork Harbour. 
And Spike Island was owned by the Cork County Council, was it? It was, yeah, and still is. And still is. So it was a kind of a, a project to bring, I suppose, extra visitors to the area, I'm guessing. Absolutely, it's One yeah. of their big remits. Yeah, it's great, Stephen. You know, it's a really good model there. You know, at the end of the day, they're not focused on profit as such, you know. Yeah. They, of course, they don't want to be making a loss because that would have to come from somewhere. But the the dream for them really is that this island is bringing over 100,000 visitors a year and they're all contributing, staying in the area, coming to Cork. You know, we really wanted something of national scale. And, you know, that's a big word. That's a big challenge, you know. How do you convince somebody who was going to Dublin for five nights? Well, actually, I'm going to spend two nights in Cork because the quality of something there is so high that that's going to get me to travel those few hours extra. So that's the, I suppose, scale of the ambition. And as that's being achieved, it really is benefiting Cork and Cork Harbour. But the big difference between Spike Island and Sainsbury's is that there was no road going into Spike Island. So, no. how, <laughs> like, was that one of the first things that you had to look at in terms of transportation? You can just imagine, Stephen. You know, I've run Sainsbury stores that had the cafes, had the you know all these different concessions and all that. Yeah. Take all of that and put it two miles offshore. You know, you think you had headaches before. Oh, yeah. you know, dear God. So you know, dealing with a, a fantastic ferry company, thank God, in Dial Shipping, who serviced the island. You know, you need that incredible relationship that when things go wrong you've got somebody who's invested and you know invested in the harbour invested in the business and willing to support you to put things right so it wasn't your own ferry you, you contracted that contracted the ferry yeah. yeah of course and again been a council attraction I suppose those quirks of you know running ferries is not something a council generally does so yeah. it's not your expertise anyway. exactly exactly so when you got the position how long was it before the doors opened like what was that period like you know like oh very short and, uh, oh absolutely and it should have been longer no doubt yeah. but I think the recruitment process dragged on and I was barely in the door when we were opening so for me it was really a rapid fire effort I suppose to try and get the absolute bare bones basics of your standard operating procedures your health and safety manuals you know a lot yeah. of things that needed to be turned around before you're getting a lot of people through the door yeah. and then re- revert to the staff side of things you know so guys, we've got our standard operating procedures in place. You know, we've got a way of running this business. We really now want to build on storytelling, you know, on yeah. craft, on getting people talking about these incredible stories and history of not just by Island, but the wider Cork, I suppose, element yeah. as well. That whole surrounding harbour being incredible. So yeah, certainly I had to land with uh, my two feet to try and get the place launched and ready in that first year. And when are we t- looking here? Is 2016 or something? 2016, spot on. Yeah, it reopened for the June Bank Holiday of 2016. Yeah, and what was that first summer like? It was good. I mean, overall, the reception was excellent. You know, ironically, one of the challenges that immediately became apparent was the size of the ferry, uh, the distance and the length it took to get people across to the island. We were fairly quickly getting challenged, uh, commercially, shall we say, on our ability to run people over. So, you know, your immediate challenge was bodies and needing a bigger ferry, which is a good complaint to have, a victim of our own success in some ways. Yeah, because it didn't. It wasn't a case of over and back, over and back. It was a scheduled times, was it? That's it, and there is unfortunately a decent, you know, wait time in that. The, the original ferry that we had, God bless it, it's an old uh, tugboat of a steamboat type thing, and it took as much as about twenty five minutes uh, each way. Of yeah. course, when you add on loading passengers, unloading passengers, you know, you're into uh, the bones of an hour basically. You know, to get a load of passengers over, it was only about an eighty seater vessel. So you can see your problem straight away. Yeah, because then you're looking at is this. Um a sustainable business model if I'm only getting 80 people over in the morning exactly like your cafes you know even the 
ticket sales it wouldn't even cover the staff No exactly and it's a big island you know you can yeah. imagine the maintenance costs on 104 acres are significant yeah. and the entire island is designated as a national monument uh, so not just this fort not just this prison and museums but every inch of the island so everything you do has to be to national monument standard which of course adds its own challenges but I presume then you got support from the OPW and things like that if it was national, no? Or, or Joe, was purely done by Cork County Council. Okay. Uh, very fortunate though that there's a very talented architects team in there who would have experience of other sites across yeah. the county, you know, well used to this kind of thing and they were always there for us for advice and for support when we needed it. So how did you overcome that solution in terms of or the, the problem of, of only 80 people, let's say for every two or three hours? How did you boost the numbers up? Joe, for us, in the initially, we looked at every other available opportunity to yeah. try and maximise the numbers. So we did utilise other operators in the harbour. Uh, we did use smaller boats and ribs and the like. There's some great companies in Cork Harbour who offer those kind of services. Yeah. But of course, the, the only big main solution was to get a bigger boat. And we procured that then in 2018. So we went from just having an 80-seater boat up to a 127-seater boat. And we were running the two of them at the same time. So all of a sudden, you can see the scale has, you know, you've two and a half times your scale uh, yeah, you, went, you went from 80 to over 200 visitors at a time then that were coming through yep in terms of then the people that were uh, you'd have to have tour guides then when they arrive is it or how did that work this is it yeah you know we did I was very uh, proud I suppose in many ways Stephen the Cork County Council really took a high quality approach you know with the business mm. rather than try and have it be something that people just land on the island and away they go and you know it's done in some places and that could be a, an interesting visit as well but we really wanted to give them that exceptional level of service where they everybody would be offered a guided tour yeah. where you could deep dive into the history of the island and you were much more likely to take that away share it with somebody and more people will come as a result so they backed that and it really did pay off because we very quickly went up the TripAdvisor rankings and offer as a national attraction we actually peaked at number three in Ireland as the third highest rated visitor attraction from those independent reviews oh. now given that that is on an island where with a ferry a lot can go wrong you know yeah. we're very proud of that but would it be a case that that will be forgiving at times as well where people say look these things happen when you're trying to transport people across but that one to one relationship with your tour guide is is the key selling point, is it? Absolutely, yeah. You know, and we had fantastic individuals. You know, there are out there some really, really talented guides who are just fantastic storytellers in their own right, but they have that natural Irish affinity for customer service. And I think we're blessed even, aren't we, to know, I think yeah. any time any of us Irish people go to the Clarenies and we go to the tour spots in Ireland, we're reminded just how good we are at this. And it is almost a natural affinity. And that natural affinity then was kind of acknowledged on a global scale. Am I right in saying you won a prestigious award? We did, yeah. We were only just uh, on our, at the end of our second year. We were named uh, Europe's leading tourist attraction of uh, 2017. So oh. at the end of that year. So yeah, delighted with that. I mean, you know, we were looking at ways, I suppose, to get the name out there. And we were brave with it, Stephen. You know, we thought, you know what? Well, why can't we be as good as anybody else out there? Yeah. Let's look at the criteria. You know, what are the expectations? What are the standards you need to be delivering? So, you know, we went for it, you know, we, we literally, we almost used those standards and templates as a guide for us to, to be the best yeah. out there. So before they come to us and ask us the question, we knew what our answer was going to be. And I think with that very targeted, you know, uh, effort to try and do that and with buy-in from brilliant staff, we managed to achieve that and create a culture where the vast majority of visitors went away with a brilliant experience. So how does that work when you go for an award like that? Do you submit... Um 
some sort of presentation or, or how to... You do, yeah. Even all of them, I think, really, the national and the international ones, you've got to submit a presentation and I suppose the, the bigger you're going, the bigger that presentation becomes. Yeah. You know, the more onerous it becomes, the more boxes they want you to tick. Yeah. You know, we're not just talking, as I say, the basics of customer service and reviews, but even wanting to see the bottom line, wanting to see your green credentials, you know, a real suite of things that as a business you need to have in place. So, yeah, we, we identify them, uh, went for them, but again, it really does take an all-island buy-in in our case. But I'd imagine that the, the 104 ideas that you came in with your original document for your interview came in handy at this point that you were able to translate that into this is these are things that we've done so far and this is our maybe plans for the future or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, you know yourself, Stephen. You're trying to identify the low-hanging fruit in any yeah. business, aren't you? You're trying to see what's going to get me you know, at an initial return. You know, at the end yeah. of the day, you've got to balance the books, day one, yeah. and that's every business out there. So you have to go for that low-hanging fruit that with, with a return on investment. And then I think as the years progress, you can be a little bit more yeah. creative. So the most recent one we did just before I left was the Spike Island Literary Festival. Mm. Now, as somebody who's interested in writing, it's something I would have loved to have been involved in day one. But the realities of the return on investment mean it's not something you could just dive into so it was fabulous to see it it's become something six years down the line and when you got that european um tourist attraction award what did that do in terms of publicity? Did you get a lot of it? Yeah, it was brilliant, Stephen. You know, it was probably the second best, I would say, uh, you know, a return on time that we put into anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got not just a national story. And I think, you know, a lot of Irish people wouldn't have known Spike Island beforehand. Yeah. You know, we had a process in the first year or two of almost getting the word out to Cork of what's here and how mm. good it is, pushing that out nationally in the following years and then internationally. What that did is it just helped us skip steps. And, you know, you can imagine the power, Stephen, of me going, meeting with the tour companies which I did every year for the six years I was there uh, Falch Ireland have a really good ecosystem where they'll set up the meetings for you you know they'll put you in front of people but it's up to you to sell the site mm. I mean what an opportunity what a thing to be able to say to them that we were voted Europe's leading tourist attraction all of a sudden there's no question of them coming to check you out and see if they're fit for their model but there was other stuff came. So you said that was the second biggest return on investment in time. What was the biggest? By a million miles, Stephen. I only checked it again the other day to see where we at. Uh, we started doing a bit of agile marketing, and I thought, listen, you know, I can't afford to put Spike Island on television in America, the UK. But what I can do is get the television programs who might be interested in the subject over to us. Yeah. So we started putting the message out there to anybody who would listen. We were spamming inboxes left, right, and centre, talking about this fabulous island in Cork, uh, giving the connections you know not we we were doing the work for them if you like you yeah. know rather than you know identifying their model you know this is what you do you're specifically interested in the history of the American War of Independence did you know that this fort in Ireland has this connection and out of that we started to get some responses uh, we had the Discovery Channel now twice which was a nice coup for us yeah. uh, we had How the Victorians Built Britain from the UK uh, Channel 5 yeah. uh, Michael Winner came over but the big one for us was two influencers called Sam and Colby I uh, don't know if you know them. They're an American duo with a massive following on YouTube. Okay. Um, I only just checked last night to see what the current total is. Uh, we've had over 10 million views, uh, mostly from the American market, on their Spike Island episode. What do they cover? See, they do paranormal style investigations. Yeah, yeah these are two young enough lads, you know, late teens, yeah. early 20s, yeah. going around filling themselves very good with the camera, very yeah. talented at what they do. You know, now yourself, there's this whole generation that are just brilliant with their editing and brilliant at what they do. Uh, they've created this niche, if you like, where they're going around first America and then the world, uh, showing these haunted places, creating these fabulous stories, bigging up the spooky history and all that. And we thought, listen, with that audience, <laughs> that's an audience yeah. we'd love to get in front of. 
of and an audience even we might never get in front of because I say most of their age bracket is that 12 to kind of 24 bracket yeah. so a difficult audience to get in front of when you're doing uh, something like a historical attraction you know how yeah. do you get that penetration and you'd have plenty of spooky stories down there. I'd well, say, see, aren't we a perfect fit, Stephen? Yeah, you know, a lot of kind of things happened over the years where there were people, I suppose, died in their prison cells or whatever it was. Yeah, and dark history is a bit of a trend. You know, yeah, it's a funny yeah, one. It sounds so yeah. morbid to say it, but the reality is we're all quite interested in going to even former graveyards, uh, sites where there might have been punishment or you know yeah. d- difficult sites as we'd call them. So yeah, absolutely, you know, it was something we realised that people were interested in this kind of stuff. You know, for us, it's a way to almost leverage the history we do want to talk about. You almost kind of have mm. to, you know, give a little bit to get what you yeah. want out of that conversation. But happy to do that. You know, our job is promoting the place, and we were going to miss an opportunity yeah because a lot of people even listening might realise the history of the place it, you know it goes back over the centuries it was always different forts and people would have been locked in different chambers and then of course it ended up a, a prison for the Irish prison service in, in, in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that as well but that kind of backstory, um, uh, you know it's phenomenal uh, in terms of some of the, the, the UK's biggest criminals ended up in Cork didn't they? Yeah that's right you know it's unbelievable I mean it's still the largest ever prison in Britain or Ireland you know that, that fact just blows my brain you know there was two and a half thousand prisoners there at its height in around the 1850s I mean, we've never had a prison of that size we've never had remotely a prison of that size in Ireland yeah. uh, since Mountjoy had about would have had about 500 cells at the time to give you mm-hmm. an equivalent uh, the largest ever prison in the UK since only opened up about five years ago and that was about 2,100. So still, you know, about 10% below the size of a prison in Cork over 160 years ago. You know, mind-blowing to me that the, that, that figure still exists. And as you said, well, what was the result of that kind of overcrowding? Mm. Unfortunately, you know, a difficult experience, but uh, one interesting for us to hear today. But it wasn't under your watch, obviously. No. <laughs> Just to clarify that for the listeners. Yeah, we certainly won't be. Uh... All of those tragic incidents <laughs> happened way before your time. Um, exactly. But it, it, it's, it's interesting that there is this, I suppose, interest in paranormal activity. And did you do events then to kind of capitalise on that as well? We did. So we started doing After Dark tours. Uh, literally the first year, you know, we saw something there. We could see the wider market was interested in the story. Mm. So we started getting people over After Dark, you know, if you're thinking six o'clock, seven o'clock until about nine or ten. Mm. And you were specifically getting the dark history stories. You know, when you come to a day tour on Spike Island, you know, we can't talk about the murderers in depth, you know, you've got yeah, families, you've yeah. got kids there. At night time, we kept it as an adults-only tour, over 15s-only, and they were warned at the start, you're getting the full story or you're getting the gore, you're getting everything that yeah, happened. Yeah. So yeah, a brilliant reaction to him, Stephen. Yeah, you know, it's kind of become its own little sub-industry, if you like. You know, it's built up a significant following and quite an engaged and active following on social media as well. It's got 24 or 5 odd thousand all, you know, standalone to the Spike Island site, which okay. will have about 50 odd. So it really does show the interest in the subject. I think we all have that little bit in this don't we and every Halloween of course the, the interest levels just ramp up and did anything unusual happen when you were doing these tours? Oh, absolutely. There are incredible pictures, Stephen. You have to have a look on the social media and the website because, yeah. listen, I want to say that I'm not a believer in that kind of stuff, that yeah. I'm, I'm rational, I'm scientific and all the yeah. rest of it. I have been shown pictures and photographs yeah. that I just have to go, right, I don't want to come in alone tomorrow. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I presume you've probably been over on the island, maybe on your own, the odd time or something like that. Yeah. It's kind of a, it is a big kind of spooky enough place. It is, it yeah. is. And Especially on a dark day, I'd say. Yeah, and there's some, there are some no-go areas, even the staff would tell you, there's some long corridors, there's some deep tunnels, and there's nobody going in there on their own to do a task, I can assure you. Yeah, I remember, I remember going down to meet you a few years ago, and uh, I think Patrick, who was working for you at the time, who yeah. had worked with me in photo as well, brought me down kind of one of those areas and next thing pigeons floor and all where but yeah yeah I won't fancy being there in the middle of the night yeah, lost your life I bet yeah yeah, yeah. Uh... so like you know it's um, yeah it's it's amazing story but then you kind of I suppose you, you knew then that I suppose 1916 was after happening but more important I suppose or independence and 21 and all that you were building up to that I'd imagine really. yeah and there was a fabulous story there you know I mentioned Tom O'Neill earlier Stephen uh, he's a historian uh, these days he's written a couple of books and he's recently published a book just in time for 1921 yeah. he actually got the names uh, addresses of about 99% of the men held on Spike Island in 1921 but also in addition to that as he was going doing this research people heard about it and they started donating artefacts related to Spike Island yeah. so there's actually about 24 personal diaries for men who lived on the island during that time and I say lived they were incarcerated you know they yeah. they were basically being picked up by the British for any even suspected or confirmed activity yeah, uh, for yeah. the IRA and being thrown inside in the prison yeah. their way of trying to deal I suppose with the problem of uh, the war of independence was to lock as many up as possible so they couldn't be a fight, uh, fit fighting yeah, unit yeah. so yeah an incredible story and we were uh, able to do a brilliant exhibition for that about the war of independence and the prisoners that were held there and you used kind of uh, I suppose a bit of interactive technology in, in relation to that as well haven't you kind of some touch touchscreen displays we and did, stuff like yeah, that yeah we digitised all of the diaries which is brilliant Stephen and we put, actually put up the entire records of all the men so if you went there now tomorrow you could type in uh, for example your, your surname just to see who shared your surname mm. but you could actually put in your, your parish your town your city your county you know you can really break down all that information in a way that makes it relatable to you and I think museums are getting much better at that these days you know let's make that experience as personal as possible I remember um, we brought some students down there I think it was early last year and I think one of the students was either her grandfather or great grandfather was on the list yeah see and did she only find that out on the day she she kind of had an idea that might be happening and she looked it up yep and you know she was actually the only Irish student we had in that class the rest were international students and they were blown away by this and I know it's they, were, they were gathered around the screen you know so it's um, yeah. this is real it's not just a made up story no and I've seen tears Stephen I really have I've seen Tom O'Neill standing with a group of uh, ladies who weren't sure again as you say there yeah. was a suggestion that the father or the grandfather might have been held on Spike Island in 1921 mm. and to see that name and quite often to see the actual records because we have the interment records that were signed on the day that they were arrested and they're visible display I've seen the tears flow for people because it's a connection with a person that's obviously long gone at this stage you know a very very emotional moment Yeah and there's so many different parts of history actually when you think of it from that being that huge prison in the in the 1850s and into that stage where they were capturing I suppose people that were fighting for independence and then in the 80s you had this kind of what would you say a riot when you had at the time they were trying to put people in who were joyriding and stuff in Cork and, and they were trying to come up with a solution for it uh, and they all broke out 
do you ever get those guys that kind of come back and say, I was a young fella then, I didn't know, you know, what I was doing kind of? Absolutely, yeah? you do. And it's gas, Stephen, because a lot of them, will. that's exactly the mentality they have. They'll happily chat away to the tour guides. Yeah. They'll pint out the cell that they stayed in. They'll share stories with yeah. them because that's how they see it. They're, you know, I, was, I wasn't I was a bad guy. I was a 17, 18, 19-year-old guy. Getting up to no good. Yeah, I was a mm. bit wild. I was a bit lost, you know what I mean? Didn't know what I was doing. And yeah, I'm a different man now and I can look back yeah. and see that for what it is. So we love talking to them. There's great stories out of them. So in your first year in 2016, what kind of visitor numbers were there? We started off with 25 odd thousand, 26 odd. So it was quite, it was quite small in it terms was. of... It was, absolutely. On a I say, I'd say the council got a shock that yeah. first year as well and I think that's the nature of the time it takes these days to, get, to grow yeah. something, to get a message out there, you know, it's, it's definitely increased. By the time we kind of got to the staycation years of 2020, 2021, because of that thing that we all tried to forget at this stage. <laughs> but like, how did it, what kind of numbers were you at that point? We'd been pushed up to about 90,000. We were just under. And we, of course, the target for us was 100,000. Yeah. Know, the, kind of the, the vision and the business plan for us was within about mm. that seven, eight year spell that we would hit the 100,000 visitors. Yeah. And we were right on the cusp of it before, you know, the thing that can't be named uh, yeah. came along and scuppered that. But we're confident that that's there. You know, that, that number does exist and that's a number that the island can be very happy, pleased and proud with. It's a very small bracket of Irish uh, tourism sites that can get over 100,000 a year. You know, yeah, it's a small, yeah. small field. Yeah, because it, it really has to appeal to the domestic audience as well. And Absolutely. then it has to be on a network really of, of international travellers and, and there's, a, there's a couple of things at play here. Absolutely. You know, yeah. access and so on. Yeah, you look at the ones in uh, Cork, for example, you know, Jameson Distillery does about 120,000, yeah. but about 70% of theirs is the international market. Yeah. So really tapped into that American, you know, interested in the whiskey tour, tasting and all that. You know, a lot of their businesses pre-booked a year in advance, you know, yeah. a very interesting model. You look at something like Blarney, which would be the other one, over 100,000 in the Crawford Art Gallery. Uh, Joe, that's largely it for Cork, though, interestingly, you know, yeah. a, a county the size that we have, we yeah. only have a handful of sites getting over 100,000, which shows the scale of the challenge. I suppose I've always <laughs> thought about it from Fortas' point of view but it's a different model if you think about domestic visitors that are bringing people in from you know right across Leinster Galway and so on um, and you'd have 90% of your visitors are from from this country yeah and you know you're getting what four hundred thousand every year. Yeah. You know so fabulous model. Yeah. You know it's so, but it does feed off the other. So if the others can piggyback off of that, but it's next door neighbour and four house is only getting that kind of twenty five thousand model in. There you are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. See. No, it's so interesting, you know, we probably overestimate in our minds, I think, the appeal of the heritage and the history. You know, we all want to see it there. We all think it's so important. But we even, you ask somebody the question, the same person who's telling you that, when you actually get them in a survey and you ask them when they go abroad, how many sites did they go to? It's actually surprisingly few. You know, it's the nature of it that we want it there and we feel a pride in culture and history, but not necessarily the first choice on everybody's list when they're, you know, maybe heading away. And repeat visits is a difficult thing for a heritage site as well. Um, it is. People yeah. will say, I've done it. You can put in a new exhibition, but they'll still say, I might wait another few years before I go back because I'd be after forgetting them what I saw the first time. Absolutely, yeah. And that's the, one of the biggest challenges we faced and we could see it, Stephen. You know, that's why for us those events became so important. Mm. You know, if you, you need to give them a reason to come back is the only way to describe it. So absolutely a great exhibition. And the 1921 was a good example. You know, we did get mm. a lot of repeat visits from a, a proud national kind of base there, shall we say. But really it was those special events. You know, it was your after 
After Dark tours. It was concerts with the likes of Johnny Cash tribute acts, mm. you know, which is something unique. Uh, you've got all these different kind of models and ways of teasing people back. And, you know, that's your job. It really is. You know, we'd sit down at the start of the year and we'd say, listen, how are we getting these people back? You know, that that's on us to motivate yeah. them, not the other way around. So events become like marketing uh, activities in many ways for yourselves as well. Exactly. You know, and sometimes those events might not turn over a lot of uh, money. You know, again, you have your mm. issues with capacity. You can only get up to a certain number. I think the largest event we ever did in the island was just over a thousand. You know, great in some ways, but you're certain, you know, you're not getting a cheer and uh, over for a thousand yeah, people, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, as a financial model, it might not always be the most lucrative, given how much time you're putting into it. But if you know that that's been talked about in every county in Ireland and something unique like a Johnny Cash concert in a prison, yeah. you know, you know, you see the benefit of that. It's a residual marketing benefit. And they might only get a taste of something and they might want to come back to see the full experience and then during the day or whatever it is. Exactly. And we found that an incredible figure with the After Dark tours. Uh, you know, from the marketing we were doing, we estimated about 45% of them were coming back Whoa. for the day tour, having never been, you know, you'd never get that kind of repeat visit normally. But the guides did such a good job of saying, listen, I've loved telling you these stories, but there's so many more I'd yeah. love to tell you, you know, because we focused on a certain aspect of the dark history. So, you know, great job of getting those people back. So I was surprised then last year when I saw that you were walking away from it all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, an opportunity came along in my current role with Cork City Council. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd done the six years at the island of that year, so I seemed mm-hmm. like, you know, six full seasons. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I feel like we'd launched it, we'd got the brand out there. I suppose we'd achieved a lot of what we wanted to achieve. Yeah. So, you know, I was kind of keeping an eye for what was out there, you know, as, as you tend to do, I suppose, you know, not necessarily expecting anything to come up. But I did see an opportunity with a Cork City Council that I thought, this is interesting. I would, uh, I'd be tempted by this. And what's involved in the new so I'm working with Cork City Council at the moment. I'm the Economic Development Officer in Strategic and Economic Development. Yeah. So yeah, an interesting one there. You know, uh, again, City Councils have such a broad remit. You know, yeah. councils in general have such a broad remit in so many different departments. Uh, a lot of fantastic people are working on a lot of different brands. And uh, I'm involved with the We Are Cork brand at the moment, okay. which I'm finding fascinating. Because again, I've gone from, if you like, uh, marketing a small scale attraction to now looking at a city brand, you know, an entire yeah. destination yeah. brand. I know you recently spoke to Seamus Heaney of Visit Cork who has that all county challenge if you like the pure Cork brand that yeah. pure Cork brand exactly yeah. you know and again there's a, it's such a unique aspect isn't it you're, you're really focusing on doing something for other people to see the benefit trying to spread that benefit as much as you can a lot of different angles to think about and particularly mm-hmm. with a city brand where it's not just visits it is about getting to people to invest in Cork it's getting people to live in Cork you know there's a real I suppose scale and scope to what you're trying to achieve so are you pitching that we are Cork brand to an international audience for inward investment and stuff like that? So Yeah, as you know, there's quite a wide remit with the brand and the hope is uh, the five kind of keys are to live, work, invest, uh, study and visit. Okay. So you've kind of got five ones. Now we're just at the evaluation stage really where the brand was launched a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, it's done quite well. It's a, you know, it's a fabulous looking brand. We're very lucky with the colour red, I think, in Cork. Yeah. It's yeah. quite outstanding, isn't it? Yeah. And you'd see it a mile off. Uh, we're supposed to evaluate where can the brand add the most value? Do you yeah. know, before we go committing too much now to a certain road or an angle, we're talking to as many people as possible. There's a, a really talented comms group now that's been put together from a variety of stakeholders in the city and county feeding into this mm. for us to see how we can take this brand forward to best benefit Cork. And is it a part of an overall vision for the city to get as it 
expands because the population has grown and obviously the city became bigger uh, when it took over parts of the county in recent years as well. It did, and you know, it is a city and county brand, which is fabulous, Stephen. You know, it's a joint council oh, venture it? between the two, yeah, okay. which is excellent. So that does give us great scope. You know, you're, yeah. you're kind of talking to somebody not just about what the city has to offer, which is so much, and it's equally important to somebody, but they're, they're so complementary, aren't they? You know, somebody coming to live in Cork, even if they want to live in the city, wants to know and loves the fact that they are 20 minutes away from some of the most beautiful scenery in yeah. the world really yeah. not just Ireland uh, likewise the person who moves to the countryside and is happy to live there 24-7 loves the fact that it's important to them that they're just 35 minutes away from something like Brown Thomas and yeah. cafes and a bit more life and all that yeah. so you know it's great that you've got this joined up brand that is now trying to communicate all the benefits of Cork and we do have some unique benefits over some you know certain cities shall we say that might be more you know congested shall we say larger you know a bit more difficult to navigate So is would the future plan with that be like a a dedicated website just promoting what We Are Cork is about or is it, does it already exist? Yeah, there is a We Are Cork website out there yeah. at the moment www.wearecork.ie yeah. uh, that's kind of giving I suppose visitors to the site you know, it's being if you like Stephen in some ways a signposting thing to say right you're interested in Cork and you're interested in a certain way I'm going to give you as much information as possible on mm-hmm. that subject and then I'm going to point you in the right direction for you to get that more information. Yeah. So you mentioned the Pure Cork brand there a moment ago. You know, yeah. it's not trying to duplicate or replicate. It's trying to, I suppose, complement and, you know, do things in other areas that get people interested in Cork mm-hmm. and then it's handing off, if you like, at the right moment to somebody to try and close that deal and get them actually utilising yeah. what Cork has to offer. Yeah, because that would be like a sub-brand really, wouldn't it? Exactly. I mean, just from a, a leisure tourism perspective, but they're not going to cross into other areas such as investment into jobs and, you know, whatever exactly. it is. Exactly, exactly. This is it. That's what the brand gives you the opportunity to do. And it's been done really, really well internationally, Stephen. You know, uh, We Love Amsterdam is a great example. Of course, uh, I Love New York is probably mm. the most you know, famous of all these kind of destination brands of all time, very much focused on a tourism aspect. But they have all now started moving into this overall encompassing piece. You know, who is hanging and combining all these different threads together? Mm. Because if somebody wants to live in a region it's not just uh, where can I work it's where can I visit you know it's what prospects do I have it's where can I study you know they want to know that there's a lifelong learning opportunity if they're going to make the move somewhere so you've got a lot of boxes to tick and you know it's interesting now going through this process of seeing how we can do that for Cork And did I see besides that role then that you're, you're also kind of interested in writing your own books yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, I mean, advanced talks at the moment. Um, I suppose I got very passionate, Stephen, about the whole Spike Island history. Yeah. Again, as I mentioned, history is definitely a passion for me and not just uh, not something I, I worked with. Mm. So I've written a couple of books on the subject and I'm mm. now in the process of uh, looking to get those published, which as anybody who's ever got a book published knows, it's not a easy. slow road, it's a long road. You have to be patient, you have to be a lot of back and forth and it's a multi-year process. But I'm optimistic that that's going to see the light of day eventually. So you have a huge passion for that area. So you're trying to combine both. And that's the great thing about working with, with, with even the city council and, and the We Are Cork brand. I'd imagine the history is coming to life as well. Very true. Yeah, absolutely. There's fabulous tourism inside in Cork City Council, as you know. There's some great sites in the city. I mean, I only saw Elizabeth Fort last night being talked about. They've got yeah. that new stage now that they've just opened up, yeah. an outdoor area. You know, there's so much to talk about the whole time. And it's, it's exciting and it's great to hear how people are using history to tell stories in different ways. So from that guy that kind of didn't know where he was going and, you know, software engineering and Carlo, you know, but you did have the the passion for business and passion for history. You've made a career for yourself, you know, know, by 
there's a lot to be said even for people to focus in on their passion. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, as they say, you'll never work a day in your life when you're, you know, yeah. following your passion and doing something you love. And, you know, and that can take time as well. Probably yeah. the biggest challenge for anybody there. You might know what you love, but how, seeing exactly the road that you can take to make a career of that, so that you're doing something you're passionate about. You know, for me, if I get to talk about history, I'm passionate. If I get to talk about business and startup, I'm passionate. Yeah. So you know, being able to work in those on a regular, daily basis is a dream come true. And talking about passions, I usually finish the podcast with three questions. So the first one I'd have, and I'm thinking there, no, there could be a lot of um, tourist attractions or maybe tourism businesses uh, about to launch for the season ahead. Uh, you know, in March, no, um, they're probably thinking about Easter coming up. They're going to open their doors again. Some might have been closed for the winter. What tip would you give a business to kind of grow? Um Oh, I think so. it's got to be the agile marketing and uh, utilizing the likes of the influencers and the people who are out there. Yeah. You know, we're we're now in a world, aren't we, where we're seeing individuals like Mr. Beast on YouTube getting more uh, likes and watches than the likes of CNN. Yeah. You know, their audiences have just gone beyond a scale that we can't ignore. So if you want to train you know, for the for the time it might take you to send a few emails to try and throw things out there, mm. you're you're fishing almost if you like, and you might send ten of them out there. You just need one of those to land and you might get the kind of uh, I suppose profile and extension that you could only dream of you know so absolutely sit down and do your plan for the year do the sensible plan first you know do the robust which you can rely on but then start thinking outside the box because you'll always land one of them and it could be the, the thing that really makes your year like the YouTubers that were the paranormal guys absolutely yeah. yeah we had that one over so I suppose for a lot of businesses there's always probably going to be someone with a niche in your category you know whether you're doing whiskey tasting or whether you're doing sheep farming or whatever it is that you know there's going to be someone that's doing blogs or posts about it on a regular basis so tap into them exactly isn't that the way it's gone Stephen there's you know the personal brand has really become so powerful now you know there are so many people who are getting a following you know and from that following creating an entire business around such niche and increasingly niche topics and subjects like I said the sheep fragrance in Sligo who's now got a huge account and yeah. they're actually bringing in income from something yeah. completely alternative so I suppose that generation coming through are you know much more aware than we ever could have been of the potential of this now and of course that been augmented by you know the new advances in technology that are supporting that the second question i'd have is what tip would you give an individual so i'm thinking of someone that wants to build a career and um, maybe in tourism or whatever what, what tip would you give them god definitely planning you know is the way to go you know if if you're kind of just winging it at the end of the day you're always going to take a hell of a lot longer to get to your destination you know your your course is kind of all over the place if you sit down and start thinking about that and you know for me that looks like journal planning uh, every day i'd spend about 10 minutes just sitting down what am i going to achieve today what am i going to achieve this week and in the back of the book i've got the end of year goal if you like you know and the end of the 365 days what am I working towards if you've got that you've got something that each and every day you're thinking about you know where you're trying to head to you know you're not going to get to a destination that you're not actually sailing for so my advice would be sit down and think about that you know go easy on yourself you're not going to have the answer to that question with the first time you sit down and do that but even over a period of years you're going to get better and better at identifying the aspects of doing what you love and if you do something you love you'll do it all day long and the last question I have is our sponsor skills base. We look to see what's the essential skill that you need and what's the essential skill you need to manage something? Because I'm thinking back of your time in Sainsbury's, um, obviously Spike, 
you know, what would be the essential skill for management? I definitely say organisation, Stephen. You know, again, it, it goes back to a little bit around that planning side of it, but probably organisation is the best word that each and every day you walk into that place and knowing exactly what's going to happen that day, you know, having your values and understanding who you are as a mm. person so they can be implemented because, you know, everybody around you will pick up on that. You know, ultimately, if you're going to manage, you rely on other people to do things to a certain standard. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't be everywhere. You can't deal with everyone. You can't, you know, answer every phone as well, say. So you've got to know that the people uh, around you are, I suppose, trained and enthused to deliver the same level of service that you know you would. And you can only do that by being organised, giving them that feeling that, you know what, I have been trained, I have been looked after, I am supported to deliver the level of service that, you know, is expected and is hoped for in this business. So that's what I'm going to do. And I've no doubt that you're organising. I think the City Council are going to benefit from that over the next couple of years with the We Are Cock brand. John, it's been fantastic to have you in. Uh, a great backstory and um, looking forward to seeing where your career takes you over the next couple of decades. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Really enjoyed it and uh, best of luck on all your ventures. Congratulations on 24 Stories. Uh, absolutely fabulous brand and look forward to seeing it develop. Thanks a million, John. That wraps up this week's podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, Skillsbase app which is a solutions provider for companies looking for mobile-first engagement and blended learning tools. To find out more information on what they can do, visit skillsbase.ie. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show and get in contact with us on all social platforms. I will be back again next week with a brand new episode.